Hello and welcome to the Stories About Autism podcast. My name is James, I'm your host and I'm a dad of two boys, Tommy and Jude, who are both autistic. Each week on the podcast I get to speak with parents of autistic children, autistic adults and professionals who work in the autism community too and give them a chance to tell their own story about autism. This week I'm joined by TJ from the social media pages Naya Functioning Autism. TJ is an autistic adult who was diagnosed in her teens, along with diagnoses of epilepsy, OCD and ADHD. She's a single mum of three and two of her children are autistic. I've been speaking with TJ online for years and I'm often picking her brain as she is such a font of knowledge and always happy to help, as anyone who already follows her will know. This is especially true when it comes to using AAC devices, just like my son Tommy does. Whilst TJ can and does speak, there are times when she feels unable to and turns to her AAC device to help her in her everyday life. This experience has fueled her passion and she now regularly helps other families integrate AAC into their lives too. Which means this episode will be particularly interesting for any families who are considering or already using an AAC device. Hearing firsthand about the impact it can make and TJ also has some great tips to increase use more widely. There's plenty else we talk about too. We discuss TJ's autism diagnosis, her understanding of it, and the impact it's had on her life. We talk about how social media has helped her to accept who she is and find community and friendships with others that she was unable to access before. TJ shares what it was like getting an autism diagnosis for her children. We discuss her own communication journey, her experience of scripting and echolalia, and how it feels when the right words just won't come out. We also talk about some of the divisions in the autism community, ABA therapy, and some of the differences in the systems in the US and UK. We talk about some really important topics from the difficulties black and brown families face in America, the police's understanding of disability, to the fear of families being able to keep their kids safe. There's something in this episode for everyone. I love talking with TJ and getting to know her story about autism. I'm sure you will too. Let's get to it. Here's our chat together. Hi, TJ. Thank you for joining me. It's been, well, as I said to you a a few minutes ago, I can't believe we're actually talking after all this time. We've been Instagram friends for for quite a while. So hello, thanks for joining me on the podcast and sharing your story about autism. Hello. Do you want to give everyone else a little intro into you and your family, telling us where you're from and and your, your setup? Hi. I'm TJ, or Tiffany, creator of the social media platforms, Knife Functioning Autism. I am a single mother of two autistic kids and one holistic child with ADHD and SPD. I live in Virginia, in the Washington, D.C. area, and work in the Maryland part of D.C. I am autistic, diagnosed in my late teens. I was diagnosed with autism-adjacent conditions when I was in elementary school like Central Auditory Processing Disorder and ADHD. I also have had epilepsy and OCD since a child. I am hard of hearing and a high-tech AAC user. I use mouth words sometimes and AAC to communicate in other times, depending how accessible my speech is to me at the moment due to mostly seizure and apraxia issues making speech unavailable. I am also a special education or more preferred accessible education par educator for elementary school and a communication teacher to teen and young adult autistic non-speakers. 
My passion in this space is communication and education rights for people of all disabilities. I specifically love teaching how to implement high-tech speech generating devices in schools and homes. I always say, I would have access to my own speech earlier if I had high-tech speech generating devices earlier in my life. I also sit on the nonprofit board for Lily's Voice, an organization that provides high-tech speech generating devices for non-speakers under age 18. I am also a member of the Maryland Developmental Disabilities Council, which is a national group available in every state that sets the disability culture and laws and policy in that state. It comprises an equal amount of caregivers and disabled people and a small amount of professionals that work with disabled people in the group, appointed by the state's governor. I encourage everyone to also see about gaining a spot in their state's local council and get involved. I use high-tech generation AAC some situations and will be using both today. Thank you, TJ. Also, um, I did want to have a bit in there for uh people finding those types of organizations that set policy in your area, even outside the United States. There's so many right. different ways in every country. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, that's one of the things that I, when I see your content and, and sort of see what you're up to, Obviously, America and UK are very different in their setup, and, and the same from I hear from followers all over. But the, I think the the concept is the same. The you know it's about finding what what the setup is local to you, and what you can do to to be involved and, and help make things better. So there's a lot to take exactly. in there from your intro, which was fantastic. Uh, your account, Nye Functioning Autism, that's sort of how we got chatting. And one of the reasons that I mm -hmm. was really keen to get you on here is because of that fact that you use both AAC and you, you know, you use spoken language too. And it, as a dad of someone who, whose son uses AAC, it fascinates me to see how you interchange between the both, how you use it in your everyday life. It's you know, it's, it's really, really interesting. I know it's really interesting for so much of my followers and, and my audience too. So let's start with, with you. And I think you mentioned there that, you know, you're autistic and you was diagnosed as you yeah. mentioned to me earlier in, you know, in your late teens. What, what was that like for you when you started going through that process of, of getting a diagnosis? Oh, well, so a lot, so many people have a process they go through, like they're expecting it, they realize it beforehand, and then they get a diagnosis. Like, for me, there was no process. I did not expect it. Um, it came out of the blue. I was having some severe struggles my first year in college. And uh, basically I, I needed a life-saving psychological intervention. Right. 
and that's when I got my diagnosis. I was not expecting it, but at the time, it was it was called Asperger's. Mm-hmm. I had no clue that it was autism, and it was not as important as the other diagnoses, like depression and anxiety, were at that moment. Um. So I didn't really like take it to heart, like the way it was described to me amongst all the other things that were going on was that it it just meant I was like socially awkward, but smart. So I was like, yeah, I know that. Like, I don't, I didn't even know they had a word for that. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't Rick, I didn't recognize that as being autism until another situation in my thirties required the same level of psychological support. And I got another diagnosis called autism spectrum disorder. And I was like, Oh, wow. I I don't, I don't really, I don't really think this is accurate. Um, I said a bunch of ableist stuff. Like I, I can talk like, what do you mean autism? I thought, I had no clue that all these different things that my brother, me, some of my family members, they had different names, but now they're all called autism. Like right. with my brother, it was like pervasive developmental something. Um, with me, it was Asperger's. With some of my cousins, it was the, they were still using until very recently, in fact, mental, I don't want to say the word label, the mental R word label. That was the actual diagnosis. Wow. So all of those ended up being autism. And I, none of, I did not realize any of that until the second time I was diagnosed because um, it's been through so many changes that I had no clue about until this last time. And again, this was out of the blue. I was not prepared for this. So no process. I had no process, to be honest, (laughs) except for being um, very unwell. (laughs) Yeah. And then, like you said, I I guess at at the time, there were other things that were, you know, you you were, you was unwell. So that was sort of the the key thing to focus on As, as you as you recovered and, and got better, did you, and then had time to start processing and learning more about autism, I guess, did, did it make more sense? Did, did you start to see things and think, ah, okay, did this make sense? Now? Yes. Um, so I will say that I was very fortunate to already have had a non-speaking autistic friend in my life. Right. Where our our main form of connecting was not autism at the point because I did not know I was that. Yeah. Um. So when I finally like was uh, what's the term? Like I feel bad, but I was like very embarrassed and ashamed of that label. Um, when it first came through, 
Um, and because it was, I had that, that ableist mindset, like I was in that, but now I'm dressed in it and inside of it. So fortunately he, uh, noticed me talking about it and now his goal was to, I can't say it was his goal, but I feel like it was his goal. Like all of our connecting points, all of our interactions from then, like grew daily and they were all about autism Right. from there. And I had somebody to help me like process mm. this diagnosis who, who had it. So what, so now years down the line, having processed it and having, I guess, learned so much more about autism through community, through your own experiences, what, what would you say autism means for you personally? How, how does it impact your life? Um, I think that, well, the most immediate thing was that I was able to, um, I, I, I always say, like, I tell people this, it's, it, I know it's going to sound weird, but like, I didn't, I didn't feel like I was human until I had social media. Yeah. Um, so it allowed me to look at myself in a different way and talk about myself to others um, as a recommendation from my therapist. Um, she said, go find people like you online. So that's what I did. And I, besides having my, my, my personal friend, I had other people that I could bounce off like stories with bounce off ideas are different like lives like some of us were what we have here we call special education some of us were in that some of us weren't like we just have like all these different stories and then I was able to connect with the greater disability space and for the first time I was not ashamed of the label. I was not like embarrassed to talk about it or think about it. Um, I found pride and um, connection with people. And, and I was able to talk about myself, which is why I say I don't feel like I was human before because I really didn't have any like connection with my my inner self it was like yeah. I was I yeah yeah I think that's something that I hear quite a lot from adults who are diagnosed relatively late is, is that Sort of greater understanding of themselves, uh, their identity—you know—things start to make sense, and it 
it's must be incredibly empowering to to have that shift in your life from you know once you get past that point to to really feel more comfortable in your skin i guess yes and i would say it's been a beacon of light for my family members who are also mm. autistic like i mentioned my sibling um some cousins some aunts um who are now learning what all their various diagnoses mean yeah. what they are um and i'm i'm helping them get to that point too mm. like the acceptance point so on on the timeline you you mentioned that two of your children are autistic how how much later after your diagnosis did that come along like is that do you feel like you had a better understanding of autism and or sorry how, let's start with a simple question how old were they when they were diagnosed they were nine and seven nine and seven okay after my second one so yeah. after me because of mine and do you feel that helped you get them to a point of receiving a diagnosis because you now had much more knowledge and, and understanding of autism? Hmm. I will have to say, just like what happened with me and my brother who was caught early as a yeah. child and I was a teen, um, I did not have as good an understanding as I thought because right. yes, this that did happen with my son, but it took two years in my daughter's school to tell me about her. Like I didn't even see it. Oh really? Okay. So I did the I did the whole ignore or ignore the girls thing. <laughs> I just yeah, it's happens to us too. Yeah. <laughs> and so they were nine and seven, you said, and how old are they now? 18 and 15. Okay. And what's the services and education been like for them? Has it been a, a fight, a battle, or is it something you've, have they been able to access sort of what, what you'd like them to? So um, at the first point, um, me and my kid's father, my um, husband, uh, I'm separated from, he was adamant that his kids will not have labels. Right. So getting a diagnosis even though the school was pushing, pushing, pushing for one um, around age four or five for my oldest. Um, you know, and I went along with him because like I, I was still in the mindset too. Yeah. Um, that was, so we rejected any, any labels, uh, like the first year of IEP, which is like, I think it's EHCP where you are. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we rejected all the 
the help and stuff because that would require a diagnosis first, AKA a label. And their father had been through the same school system here that they're going through. And uh, apparently, you know, there there's always something racial in the United States, of course, but there were some practices about diagnosing black children and labeling them um, to either gain money for the school system uh, or to basically take away someone's freedom. Um, wow. So having a having a, dis, a disability diagnosis was seen as a way of somebody from the outside being able to control your life. Okay. And that's how it was used, even when kids were not technically disabled. Um, so swap to now, I think it's a lot better culture, but there's still those old mindsets mm. of why you don't wanna have a disability label. So all that to say, is for my oldest, um, it was like we were fighting against his diagnosis the first few years and against any kind of intervention. And now that I'm like older, I'm like, oh. But by the time my um, daughter, who's three years behind in um, school came, I just knew that I had a different mindset. I just didn't involve their father with stuff so that they can get everything they needed so they didn't have to struggle. Um, and since then, I have been happy with services yeah. since then. Because where I live, the services are, are seen as very good. Um, I'm in the Maryland, Washington, D.C. area, so our adult services are spectacular, but our kid services are fine, but there's no place, no place where I think that any place is not messing up their communication and education with their disabled population, no matter how good they are. Yeah. Everywhere is bad. Yeah, that, that's something we'll, we'll talk about a bit more uh, as we talk about your experience with AAC and and my experience here is with, with Tommy too. It's it's interesting, you know. You, you've I guess over the last ten years been on, on quite a journey personally and with, with your children too. Uh, and like you said, you've surrounded yourself with community and, and you know, online and finding people to, to connect with and, and feel much more yourself. And is that what sort of pushed you to start start being involved in the AAC world? Is, is that how, like you mentioned in your, you know, when you used the AAC device at the beginning, that you feel like, if you'd have had access to to that when you was younger, 
uh, you know, your speech would have would have come on a lot quicker. Does that mean you were quite delayed in, in speaking? That that is a question of perception, I think, at the time, because what I was told, and also what I remember, is that it was a lot of scripting and echolalia. Okay. But I knew back then that was not being able to communicate my inside. I knew that the the inside wasn't getting outside yeah. through my speech. Um, but adults back then thought it was. So I don't think they, and I, I had a very good enunciation, but it was for things that I had memorized, mm -hmm. right? So it wasn't like I'm just saying something that's on my mind. Yeah. You know, like I, like I didn't, I honestly, back then, I didn't, I didn't know that was an option. Mm. I was the only child and um, pretty much everybody around me was adults. And I just thought that would, that's something that bigger people can do. You know, like, so I just said whatever. I still remember some of my scripts. Like I had the one from Pinocchio really? that would always impress the adults. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, they love to hear this. Oh my goodness. Uh, I've learned my lesson and the lesson I've learned is learning my lesson comes first. If you want to have the attention of adults, that was, that was the one. They love that one. <laughs> so that, that's like my social connecting hmm. or my scripts, like seeing the reaction that my scripts would, would elicit. But I, then it was not m me, you know. Oh. It was just a a way to interact. Um, would you ever script like that to yourself? You know, like using echolalia rather than actually being around other adults and, and communicating. Would you ever, you know, just re be repeating those those lines to yourself as well? Yep. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's practice. That's how you practice. <laughs> <laughs> so, and was that a conscious thing? Was it because you wanted to have it perfect, the, the script, or was it just that you enjoyed saying those um, lines? Or... Yeah, I know, I, it I know was, a lot of our kids do do this. I, to I would have... anxiety and to you know that it, it helps. Yeah, them. it's. I would say it's definitely not a conscious thing. Like I have a, of a post where I call, I say like neurotypicals call, we we call it scripting and echolalia, but neurotypicals call it affirmations. <laughs> Cause yeah. it's, it's always good to have something in the moment mm. ready to calm you down. Mm. But it's not like I consciously am like, Okay, we need to memorize this because this will help us later. It just 
magically happens. Yeah. So fast forward to being an adult and I guess discovering AAC, like what made you think or had you had difficulties before with, with not being able to express what you wanted to say, like even, you know, even as an adult? Oh, yes. Um, that is another reason I was not, I was not a human before social media because mm. again, I just didn't know it was an option to express certain things Yeah, because it's like, it wasn't, my first instinct to describe my inner world for for the for the and to have an audience for it or something i don't i just did not know that was an option to express my my inner self until social media so Social media allowed me to like take like pictures and text and describe myself, which eventually I'm, I'm also with therapy, um, therapy helped cause I had to tell somebody these things too, but like the combination of those, like I finally had a means of sharing my my inner thoughts and stuff mm. with social media and so yeah that, until i was about my early 30s um i i've always had a trouble expressing myself yeah and that's you know, there's, there's a lot of bad press about social media, a lot of negativity about social media and, and some of the, and yeah, it can be like, you know, there are some negative elements to it, but nearly everyone I speak to in our community, you know, when I talk to like this, it's largely because of social media and the impact it's had on their life, whether it's to find others to connect with, whether it's to express, you know, finally find a way to express yourself like like you've described you can do so much good as well it's it's you know i'm a huge uh what's the word fan not fan champion of social media i I think if you if you use it in the right way then then it can you know make such a difference to people's lives exactly see i a lot of people were thinking of their childhoods where they had the ability to go out and to connect via conversation, uh, via being mobile. Mm -hmm. And they look at social media and say, oh, it's so sad. The kids don't do that anymore. But they never look at the kids during their day who wouldn't have been so lonely if they had social media back then. Mm. So for, for us, social media is, it's a, it's a huge step positive, but Mm. for other people who 
had the privilege of not having to have missed out on not having social media um, in their childhood, then they think of it as a sad thing or a way that people are disconnecting from each other when that's how we were finally able to connect Mm. with other people. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And is social media how you've discovered AAC? Is that sort of where you first found it or um, was you introduced to it another way? So I will say that uh, I would say social media was my first AAC. Mm. Um, cause social media is a type of communication that is not considered the, the normative speech, um, type of communication. Um, but, and, and all, all media forms are AAC technically, but to be more specific, I did have my friend who used AAC. Um, like I said before, we didn't talk about any autism things because that is like, I didn't, I didn't think I was autistic. So, but um, I I didn't know that people used AAC actually because. So. The way he used it was social media like facebook was his aac mm-hmm. where he lived that is their portal to the internet so that is his portal to communicating with people yeah because he lived with other um disabled people who didn't have the um that didn't meet his conversational needs so in, in the back of my mind, I ha- I had known AAC. Um, I knew that there were other ways to communicate without having to say it out of your mouth, right? But I didn't realize it was something that it was for me because I, you, you and I are using the normative, um, the most widely accepted form of communication is mouth. Something I still have a hard time doing, but to a much less degree because I'm becoming more and more human as time goes on. Um, my speech does does not work when emotions or feelings are to be talked about. Okay. I have no idea why. Um, but that made therapy very hard. Not being able to talk with emotions made talk therapy very difficult, mm. even though that was what I was supposed to be doing every week. So I think my therapist was just like frustrated. Yeah. 
And she's like, okay, let's just write. So I would, we'd be in a therapy session together and I would text her, you know, stuff. And she would talk to me. And that was like the first, uh, like, like little light bulb in my head that I wish I could just communicate through through typing because this is so much more effective, efficient. Mm. Uh, a lot of times when I'm using the speech from my mouth, my it's like my so hard to describe it's like my brain has like it, it it'll bring up like all the words i'm supposed to say that i want to say but it'll it'll push others in there and then it'll just randomly pick so like maybe one of those words is was what i was supposed to say but who knows you're gonna get something that who knows what the conversation's gonna go? It's like, yeah. um, as I always say, it, it's like watching myself have a conversation with somebody and I have like no more input. Like, my, my control of the conversation is just gone. Mm. It's like literally being like in a separate being. Wow. That must be. It must be so frustrating. It must be so, you know, when that happens and that you don't have a, an alternative way of communicating. And, you know, I, I see it in Jude or Tommy when, you know, that they have such limited communication and I can see how frustrating it is for them when I don't understand what, what it is that they're trying to tell me. And on the flip side, though, for someone who can talk as, you know, as fluently as, as you are and, and you know converse as as we are today to then at certain moments just it almost shut down and 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 not be able to it, it must have been you know so frustrating and until you you found the alternative yes it was very difficult having relationships because mm -hmm. Um, the the speech and the emotion thing would not work together. Yeah. So I could not tell people how I felt. Um, I a lot of times would say I just absorbed people's words and wrong ideas of me. And I had no way of like fighting back against them. Like wow. I couldn't correct them. And, uh, you know, people want you to tell, like, sometimes they like try to force you to talk about your emotions and your yeah. feelings. And at, at that point, you, you, it's just like saying words just to say them. Um, because the, that, that part is not like connected. 
Mm. So it's not giving the person anything real. And I feel like, I thought, I thought that by the time I was an adult, that that would be fixed. Like, you know, a lot of the things that I would do when I was little that I now know are because of autism. I thought that these things that I would automatically get rid of or change when I became an adult. I thought I'd be like a regular adult, you know, yeah. like yeah. a, a neurotypical adult. You thought you'd grow so, out of those behaviors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How long have you been using an AAC device? Um, since 20, early 2018. Okay. And it was um, just speech assistant. One of my Instagram friends was also a podcaster, and she asked me to be on her show over the phone. I absolutely didn't use the phone whatsoever. But it made me try to think of a way to do so without having to worry about if my mouth speech. Okay, so that was the... I guess light bulb moment for you to to push you to to find a way to do something that you wanted to do. Uh, you wanted to be able to speak on the phone, to be able to be a part of this podcast, and I guess in a way it was a motivator, a, a way of you know you you really wanted to do something, and and you found a way to do it. Yes. And um, here, here is another reason I say um, social media made me a little bit, like a little bit more and more like me feeling like a human, right? Yeah. Because I wouldn't have had this if I was just a person that went to therapy and didn't have social media like I did um but I, I have many autistic friends who are not even online and if they are they don't talk about autism at all online but for me social media was my way of connecting with other humans so this person asking me this you know led me to ask, well, how can I do these things? Mm. How, how can I accommodate myself and stop making everything so hard for myself or just being upset that I, I just can't do things? Like, um, my first few podcasts, I did not use my mouth speech at all. I was way too nervous. It wouldn't have worked. And yeah. I mean, I've been doing podcasts now, so I can, I, this is like an, a new like skill. Mm. Like I have, yeah. like having like back and forth conversation is a new skill for me. It's, it's no longer surface conversations and that's all I could could get to you know 
don't which, know if I answered your question. Yeah, which is fantastic though, because I, I guess that's how it's also led to being such a passion of yours, right? And and being something that you you're trying to educate people on and trying to help people with. You know, I I see the content you do. I see the um to the other work that you do around AAC and then trying to educate users and parents and families. I know how important that is, how little I knew or even still know about AAC and how to, how to help Tommy use it or help Jude use it. So to talk a little about that, about how that's become, uh, I guess your calling in a way, isn't it? It's your, you know, it seems to be quite a, quite a huge purpose in your life. I, I would have to agree that the, I feel like it, 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 it like unlocked me. Like mm. it's, it gave me like a, a way out and for me even better, um, through social media, that way out as AAC, social media is allowing me to share my, my, uh, my thoughts and, and, and things I'm learning along the way. Mm. Um, but yes, I, once I had a, a, an AAC app on my phone for the first time, like, it felt like, like so much power, like, I can write, I can use the the method of communication that actually is me yeah, and combine it with somebody, combine it with a voice that I don't have to rely on mine to, to work. Like I have, I will always have a way of combining what the world wants, which is out loud mouth speech with the way I can truly uh, describe myself. I was like, this is this. I needed this when I was like, Mm seven, eight, nine, all those years. And and now you're taking that experience and shouting about it uh, to other families and you're, you know, you're pushing AAC and how important it is. And how does that feel? Like, I, I know you, you work with families directly. What, you know, what, what should a what should a family know? What do they need to know? What what's going to help them on their AAC journey? Okay, this is a great question. I love this. Um, the main thing is that 
consistency is the main thing. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter if you are so-called bad at using AAC, if you're slow, if you don't know where anything is, if you think you're doing it wrong. No, the only thing to do wrong is to, like, skip a day. Mm. That's that's wrong. Like, not doing it is the only wrong thing. Because there are some AAC truths. They're just truths. They're, like, principles. And the only way to fully understand those and everybody will come to these understandings is through using it every single day. Mm. It's not something that I can just teach some somebody. It's not something that anybody can be taught. It's through experience. Yeah. And consistency is everything with any kind of communication. Um <clears throat> Do not fall into the fallacy that um, your student needs a a grid with only like a few letters, you know, because they can only uh, they'll they'll be overwhelmed by too many buttons. Mm. That is, um, it's a self fulfilling prophecy for one because how will they learn where the other buttons are if they never have access to them yeah so of course they're not going to um do that but they need to have access to as much as possible um because there's no human way for us to predict what's on anyone's mind at any given point. And if they only have a few buttons to look at, it can be quite demotivating mm. to use AAC if nothing you have to say is something that you can see or can get to. Which brings me to my next point. Do at least like 70% of your modeling in the text-to-speech um, like like the like typing and then speaking, not all the grid buttons. Because with the 26 letters, you have unlimited things you can say. Right. With the pictures. You, you can say what those pictures mm. have to say. And a lot of kids are, in, in autistic kids are hyperlexic, um, and we also have a good amount of dyslexic kids, right? But if you're non-speaking, how would anyone know which one, right? Um, so it's important to model using the keyboard, using, um, all the 
methods of uh, text-to-speech to show the power of uh, spelling whatever they want gets them the speech yeah. of whatever it is that they spell. So um, even if you're using it to model uh, how to find a button, you know, using the search feature, that is still using the literacy of the AAC. So either you're helping teach literacy or you're just using it in a way that the hyperlexic autistic mind already works. So like for me, the pictures, I'm I'm hyperlexic. Um I'm a visual learner, but not like with pictures. Like when I think, I see speech. I mean, I see text. Okay. So, and still to this day, if I don't see the text in my mind first, it, it will come out my mouth correctly. So, having AAC with pictures for me would have slowed me down because I would have had to interpret the picture into text like some some kids would be like visual pictures or movies and they would have to um it would be hard for them to use the keyboard necessarily because they're they're thinking pictures yeah i would have been opposite the keyboard would have unlocked so much for me at that age so that's my that's my thing is to use the keyboard in modeling to show the power of being able to say whatever you want to say and uh but also to introduce literacy you know earlier I think that there's some great points there. And if I think about Jude and Tommy's experiences of, of AAC, so Tommy is at a stage where he can type, he can spell some words that he wants to say, and he will use the keyboard and he can also navigate through different folders and find the words that he needs. And occasionally he'll be frustrated because either he can't find it or he or he can't spell it. So that's tricky when that happens. Then I'm trying to figure out, okay, it starts with a C. What's the word that he's trying to say, um, you know, and trying to help him. And then for Jude, going back to your first point about having, uh, not having too few buttons, that, that's something that I've learned more this year. Uh, and again, naturally, I always thought with Jude, he's he's not really taken to AAC device yet. I'm still hoping he will. He struggles to identify at times. And, you know, when they've 
uh, school when I've tried to do choices with him and, you know, knowing using motivators and getting him to see which words he can identify and still having the photos and, and stuff alongside the word, he still struggles to choose the right one or choose the relevant one or, um, you know, it's, it's very in inconsistent. So in my head, it was always, okay, well, yeah, of course, if I have 10 words, 15 words on, on the grid, that's too many for him to, to figure out he needs, okay, I know I'm trying to get him to choose a TV program. He needs the two choices. What, what advice would you have in that situation? Um, I know it's a, you know, it's a complex thing. It's not a, a simple, simple thing to solve, but for me with Jude, if he's struggling to identify the different symbols or the different photos, how do I help him progress to getting some consistency? Okay. So what I feel is that he's not struggling to identify anything. He hmm. knows what is going on. He cannot get his body to show his knowledge. Like he cannot okay. choose the right thing that he wants. Hmm. He sounds like somebody who has a very sensitive um, sensory system. Mm -hmm. uh, so his movements are very highly attached to his mood, the yep. environment, um, feelings, something that happened earlier in the day, deep thoughts, you know, fears, worries, etc., etc. So I feel like he would need more physical support he is not he does not sound like he is able to um get his body to cooperate with him mm. he's just um he, ne he needs more physical help he he has more um sensitivity uh to everything um so a dysregulated body would would make him seem like he doesn't know what to choose and by not choosing the right things yeah. you know um because so when, when, when you're he, saying physical help what's what's an example doesn't sound like he can that? get his body what's an example of the physical how the physical um, help i could give him so might be if we're talking about AAC in particular, it might be um, hand under hand, mm -hmm. like you just basically acting like a joystick, like okay. he moves your hand, he borrows your motor skills. Yeah. Um, and he has to do little work, like almost like the idea of a switch with AAC, but um with the human helper, you know, okay. and that might be one way you can offer your hand, um, position of 
the AAC device might be out of um, fine motor control mm -hmm. for the eyes to stay in a particular position. So when you're dealing with apraxia, dyspraxia, um, just remember the same fine motors that make speech difficult also make like some eye movements difficult um, or gaining controls of the eyes. Um, so um, that's another fine motor assistance they would need is like, where are their eyes able to focus best for the longest? Yeah. Um, so positioning, um, that's why if you see like, people who have like letter boards, why people hold them because, you know, everybody doesn't have the same, you can't standardize like a stand like this that holds a tablet. It can't be standardized for yeah. people with dyspraxia. So you might need to hold the iPad in a, in a, in various spots to find out, um, mm. make them available in various spots. Like I like putting them on the wall, you know, like having a, a stand on the wall because maybe okay. that might be a good visual spot and there's no, you know, when you're a teenager, like <laughs> the way you feel about your parents being around is a little, um, you know, Right. Uh, uh, so if you have it now, in yeah. a way where, <laughs> yeah, so you you have it in a way that's away from you, the parent, where the student can practice, right? You know, freely, but it's still in a position for them, like hanging them on the wall or finding mm -hmm. like it. Th these are these are why AAC needs to be much more. People need to be much more knowledgeable about it because mm -hmm. I don't think they figure these things out in evaluations. Yeah. Um, so, and also um, positioning also because a lot of, um, again, non-speakers have apraxia, dyspraxia, like most autistic people do have it, but it, the, the, lack of control is what non-speakers tend to go through the most and that's why their mouths and minds don't work together you know they're not able to control their bodies during um sensory overload or meltdowns it's it's like um like becoming um completely disconnected from the control over your body right mm. well all this time, all over these years, you know, a lot of these fine motor muscles have not been worked that AAC requires. So there's a lot of positions that we expect our users to automatically use that are actually very difficult for them. Their, their muscles are not toned in those areas. You know, you might have to work on pointing if that's a thing that you want to work on. 
over and over again until you, it's kind of like an exercise program, you know, but people assume the AAC user is not interested um, or they just don't understand what's going on. But a lot of times we have them in positions where their bodies just can't use them properly. And then, you know, then the, then they're blamed mm. for not being able to understand how to use AAC. And then they're never given AAC again. You're describing Jude's AAC journey at school. <laughs> they, you know, that they've moved on from AAC and I'm pushing them back to it because there hadn't been much success and, and yeah, his fine motor skills aren't great. And there's all kinds of things that, that they're seeing as reasons why it's not working for him. So that, that's really, really interesting to, to, to get from you. And it's, like I said, it's something I'm pushing for to, and it's something I need to do more at home. I, I know that too. It's, I need to, to take the, the step and just, just get him using it at home as well as expecting school to do it with him. I, I will say that getting him to use it, um, I will say right now, since you're, if you're going to start back up for the most part, Hmm. you would want to be the one to use it. Like if he uses it at all in the next few months, bonus. But right now, um, you're more like in a modeling, yeah. modeling without expectation stage. Okay. So don't feel bad if he doesn't use it. If he uses it, that's awesome. But he he would not be expected to um, use it, especially because uh, he might need that physical positioning support, the motor mm. support. Um, you might want to try leaving it in various heights, like on the table one day, couple, maybe one week or something. Or, you know, somewhere where he can, if he wants to use it, use it. Um, diff, like on the counter another time. I know he's probably getting taller. So, like, um, try various positions. But you're kind of like, you're kind of like modeling. You're modeling yeah. even, like, changing positions, like, giving him that idea that, oh, I can put this in different places for my needs. You know, you're modeling that too. You're modeling every part. If he uses it at all, that's awesome. Bonus. Yeah, that's, that's really good to know. I will definitely be modeling it with him very soon. So for those of you watching the video recording, you might notice that things look a little bit different suddenly we had some technical quality technical issues 
and had to pause our recording and we're doing it again a few hours later so the lighting is a bit different and a lot's gone on in in both of our days so but we're back we're back to finish off with, with a few more a few more topics so thanks tj for coming back i wanted to talk about we've we've talked a lot about the benefits you've found from community online and clearly i found a huge benefit online from talking to autistic adults like yourself from talking to parents families and i know for everyone that's not such a simple experience maybe as as uh, or positive experience as i've had um there are elements of the community that will there's a lot well there's a lot of disagreement shall we say uh you know about certain topics or and it can call can be quite divisive and i just wanted to talk about that i wanted to talk about your experience because i know that i've seen some really great posts that you've you've made where you try and explain things from from both viewpoints as an autistic adult and as a parent and remembering a time where you knew nothing about autism and 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 had your own you know beliefs and and, and viewpoints so do you want to talk a little about that a lot of the quote unquote fights that are going on um would seem like between the like parents and families of disabled people versus disabled people themselves. Um, and that's, I think it's pretty magnified in the greater autism community because there's like an autistic community and then there's like an autism community. And it seems like those two things are at odds, but really I think what is actually happening underneath the surface is um, so like this double edged sword of um, social media. So we talked about a lot of it's good. Well, um, these like divisions, quote unquote divisions are some of the bad parts of social media it's it's like there are a few people who have figured out that they can be like outlandish or judgmental or angry or always outraged um and that gets them a high spot in the algorithm which um a lot of creators would use to capitalize on earnings. So there's like, a, even if there wasn't an earnings incentive, there's like a an attention incentive. People like attention, you know? Um, they want people to look at them as leaders and as people who know what, who knows, who know, what's going on in the world of autism or who know better than others. And I think they figured out that division can exponentially increase the attention they want or possibly the 
earnings they want, the views, um, you know, might inadvertently lead to like ad revenue or things like that. And so there's a lot of financial incentive, but even without the financial incentive, there's still like this attention incentive of having division within this community. Now, I, I don't see that parents and autistic people actually disagree a lot. I do see that there are a lot of terms and words and like differences in the mindset of a parent versus the mindset of a disabled adult. Um, there, there are those differences, but they're actually not things that we disagree about if you really get down to it. Like if you really like strip all the like anger and stuff out of it and you'll see that we're all asking for acceptance of who we are, who our families are without having to you know, stay away from the community without having to pretend we're not something we aren't, without having to keep quiet, you know. That's the commonality between autistic people and their families. Um, we all need like stable housing, healthcare. Um, I know some, some countries, we don't have good healthcare, so, um, even in countries that have free healthcare doesn't mean it's like appropriate or good. Um, so we all need appropriate, proper healthcare um, for our conditions. Equal education opportunities. Um, and inside of that is uh, accessible communication it would be nice if our societies um, used mouth speech, AAC devices, and our country's sign languages all at once. Um, so there, there, most of the things that would help one group obviously helps the other, and it's a continuous cycling cycle of everybody getting what they need. So I don't understand. Uh, no, I do understand why these divisions are, but I just don't understand how people don't see how our emotions are being tweaked just so, you know. It's, it's something that's always puzzled me. It's like... <laughs> And as the years have gone by, I understand the community a lot better. I understand uh, people's views a lot better. I, I feel very much like you that there's so many important things to focus on, like our energy and our, uh, you know, just if, if we work together, we'd achieve so much more than, than, you know, by focusing on the bigger things. And 
it doesn't mean that smaller things aren't important and aren't important personally, but you know, the, I'll just use an example: the whole autism or, or autistic. I've met, or I've met adults who prefer to describe themselves as having autism, and I've met many adults who prefer to describe themselves as being autistic. So, you know, that I'm sure there's a majority one way or the other. But then also, uh, let's defer to people's choices and and just go <laughs> focus on the bigger things like healthcare and accessibility and education and community. You know, it, it just feels so so frustrating when there's there's so much we could all do together. And I've learned so much from autistic adults. And I know that there's so many parents who are scared of talking to autistic adults because their only experience has been someone telling them they're doing everything wrong and they shouldn't be doing this and they should be doing that. And that one person has, has you know, has, has given them an experience. And then, you know, I, having my page has enabled me to talk to lots of different autistic adults, but for a family, you know, they might have one Facebook post they make and then be shut down and that frightens them off of, of trying to to find out more. And it's just such a shame, I think. Yes, I I don't like that we tend to assume that we have the same access to information. Um, specifically, one thing I saw as an autistic adult looking up a looking up something about myself is very different results from what you would get when you're looking up autism about your child and people who haven't gone through both sides won't realize that these even these algorithms like the search results are taking you down like paths like like this that get ever further and you get two different views on autism so of course that's going to be as expected if you're looking up something to confirm or validate things you know about yourself are going to be vastly different from okay you're wondering why a whole separate person is doing something or what they need help with and that's your child so of course they're going to be a little different but i mean just like terms and you'll see like a lot of angry ranting you know condemning the other side like before you even get fully enmeshed in learning about yourself or your child like you've already started subtly hating that the other side just doesn't and refuses to understand you and your plight when that's actually 
that's not really what's going on. Like people are just really looking for information both ways and there there's there's things like blocking them from being able to have like a neutral path. Yeah, and I think most people, whether it's an autistic person or or a parent, you're like you said, you're looking for information and you're looking for community. You're looking for people who understand what you're going through and what and possibly what your child is going through. And and that makes such a difference. We both know that. And it's just such a shame that that not everybody has access to that. I do want to reiterate that most of us are not online and yeah what we if we are online we're not online specifically to look up or communicate about autism so a lot of what we see that that happens in, on social media is not like real like these are not arguments that would yeah, it's an extreme make version, any difference. Yeah. It's an yeah, extreme. Yeah. Exactly. Like yeah. none of us would argue about any of these things because they don't really have anything. They don't like accentuate or help our daily lives. And hmm. that's what we really need to look at those things. So one of the, the topics that, I've seen you talk about that is divisive within the autism community is ABA and here in the UK ABA isn't widely used um, anywhere near as, as much as it is in the US it's it's never really been an option for for us it's so it's never been something you know I'd know inside out because it was just never an option um, and clearly, I've I've seen the, the, the pros and the cons hotly debated uh, online. But I know you've approached the conversation in a, from a slightly different point. And one of your posts spoke about that, about how for some people it's there's not many options for for therapy or for services, and and there's reasons why some families will follow ABA because almost like they have to or because of the the result that they're trying to achieve. Do you, do you want to explain that a little? Yes. So ABA is different in the United States in that it's more of a distribution system for therapy now versus an actual unified type of therapy. What I mean by that is in the UK, when ABA therapy is done there, it's like what we call like the old, like bad type of ABA. Um, but in the United States, what they call the new, the new quote unquote ABA um, is just like, kind of like watered down um, mixtures of 
therapies. Uh, and some of that is so that people will be able to practice the therapy with autistic students, but they won't have to practice a specific type of ABA. So I do understand why people from the UK are very like strongly, like adamant that ABA is terrible because for the most part it is even here with the brand new like so-called good ABA, it still makes a lot of assumptions um, about autistic people that make the whole point of therapy like pointless basically. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll be more specific. So the way we have the system here in the United States is that it's, it's everywhere. It's codified into the laws, the state laws, federal laws, um, local laws. Like if you hear autism, you will likely hear ABA. And you'll hear that it's guaranteed coverage because we have to pay for our insurance here. So we have to pretty much only use what's covered by insurance or pay out of pocket, which is out of reach for 90% of families. And um, so then you have ABA where, I don't know about Australia, but I know in the UK, you guys don't really have this this delivery system for therapy through ABA. Like you guys have, I'm assuming different therapies, but not all of it's mandated ABA. No, no, it's the therapies that we would receive would be generally through school. Um, and there's very few ABA schools in the UK. A lot of uh, special education schools use uh, teach. Uh, and then there'll be um, occupational therapy, speech therapy, uh, you know, w w within that. So, yeah, ABA, like I said, it, it, unless you do it privately yourself with, you know, you find an ABA qualified tutor and and or you get training yourself or you you know and, and you fund it all yourself it, it's not there's there's a handful of schools across the whole country so for us like if you go if you get a diagnosis you're generally given the local aba centers to call along with a diagnosis so it's assumed that you would get ABA. So with me and 
uh, other autistic parents of autistic kids are trying to point out is this system like funnels parents directly into ABA. They're not necessarily choosing to do it. Most don't know that you should not or shouldn't. They don't know much about it. It's just assumed that that's where they would send their kids next. That's like the next step after a diagnosis. And we have another system that, you know, parents generally have to work because they have to have uh, health insurance, usually through the job where they have to pay for it out of pocket. And they have to be able to feed, clothe, house their child. So they definitely need to have daycare because our schools don't start until five here. Daycares drop disabled kids. They sometimes, if you mention the diagnosis up front, they'll just say no, they can't. Sometimes they'll have like one dysregulated day with the kid, and that kid is denied services from further from after that. But parents can get an ABA center that will take their child and they won't have to pay for daycare costs out of pocket because the health insurance will cover it. Well, that's a, a dilemma that a lot of people are in because they have no other place to take their child. Legally, they're not supposed to be able to discriminate but there's so many loopholes in our Americans with Disabilities Act that all they have to do is say they don't have staffing or, you know, that it's a safety issue for their, for their other clients. And then they're done. They don't have any accountability for that. So there's literally sometimes no, there's no, there's no other place. There's, there's no other place that will take care of an autistic child in the United States. That's the system the parents are in, whether they want to or not. Yeah, that, that's something I, I've never never really thought of when, you know, when I first sort of saw the debates about ABA and I never heard it explained that way that like you said, for, for a lot of people, there really isn't a choice and you can be informed. And also from what I understand as well, like you said, that there's, you know, there's better centers, there's better therapists, there's better teachers and, you know, same as, as anything. And then the, there's some that are not so good and not so up to date and not so, so I guess, yeah, like, like any any person your experience is going to be different your which therapy is right for you is going to be different and and the most beneficial so it it really is a a, a tough choice to make yes and I, I i do want to point out that 
I don't think being autistic automatically means, whether non-speaking or not, that it's a person will need therapy. You can not have therapy and still, you know, implement AAC. You can still, you know, learn about dyspraxia and um, motor control and helping that. But I will say that sometimes there are behaviors that are very dangerous, like running, you know, like running across the traffic, running into water, um, eating things. Um, one of my, my children had a, it's pica, but it was salt. So uh, the inability to stop, even if it would be fatal, like there'd be an inability to stop eating salt. So all salt has to be kept away. Like there are some, some, some kids like have a compulsion to eat non-food items that are dangerous, like all the time. Things like that, I don't feel like any family should be judged, whatever they're doing to try and keep their loved one alive. Um, so that for me, that's a, a non-negotiable, like nobody's allowed to judge parents just trying to do that. But also when we discuss like black and, black and brown families, almost all the decisions could be about that because if I'm a black family and my child elopes, well, a, a common stereotype of black parents is that we don't look after our kids, right? So this is in the back of our mind Every parent says that, but this is in the back of our mind. If we have to talk to the police, they might not be as helpful or um, in my case, they are adding shame to the situation. As we were saying, there's certain behaviors that can be dangerous, whether that's eloping, whether that's aggressive behaviors. And my fear is always the boys being safe because of something that they might do. I've never had to worry that they might be in danger because of the police or because of um, the way people would treat them. And that that's clearly a very different experience for for like you said, black and brown families, especially in America. The reason I mention all of this, because I know that there's no way for people who don't think about these things to know. Yeah. But also, 
to show the autistic community that, you know, you need to understand that there are valid reasons that people are are thinking differently when you mm. you don't you don't you don't own a specific narrative there are there's way too much nuance in our decision making and it doesn't matter if we're black or brown like any of us parents have different regional privileges or unprivileges, you know, there are, there are some rich white families that, you know, live in areas where they can't get help either, Hmm. you know, that I might have access to because I am in the Washington DC area. So there's all kinds of reasons that all kinds of families have to make different decisions. And I think we should get to know what those those realities are before we judge. Definitely. And and just to finish on on, on that point, again going back to, to one of your posts that stuck with me where you mentioned about how being an AAC user and being confronted by the police could could be could create problems uh, because the way you communicate is with your device. But what if that device is in your pocket or in your bag, and the police are stopping you, and and you are unable to communicate back without reaching for your pocket or your bag? And again, these these are problems that we just don't have to think about that. That, that some families really do. Yeah, there's there's a thing here that I I'm pretty sure is like maybe all authority gets, but in the United States, like you need to be perfectly compliant with the police, mm. um, and you need to still try to be compliant even in the midst of thinking about all the other people that have gone through the situation in the midst of um, literally being afraid and um, in, in, in the midst of people barking orders at you sometimes with their guns drawn so you have to be perfectly compliant, but part of compliance in our um, like ableist society that uh, the ableism is in the fact that people assume everybody else can talk yeah. and can hear and can move their bodies like them. And if they are not doing those things that that is the choice that they're making in the moment so not answering a police with your mouth uh puts you in a lot of risk Mm -hmm. if you're deaf 
or if you can't speak with your mouth only, then you're automatically going to start stirring up suspicion and quite possibly anger in the police that are with you. And there's nothing that you can do about that. There's literally nothing. There's nothing. Yeah. If the assumption is that people who are not moving a certain way are moving to their commands, are not speaking to them when they want to be spoken to, there's never an assumption of disability. Because the first assumption is they just don't want to be compliant. Mm. But the se- the second assumption is drugs. So there's not a lot of empathy given to the person in the moment by a police officer who is assuming either you're choosing to disobey and you're supposed to obey the police. Or if you can't obey, it's because you are on something and you can possibly harm them because you're on something. Yeah. So they're extra defensive either way. And if you're deaf and you use sign language, you cannot use your hands to speak because mm. not only are you being non-compliant, but then you are reaching for something. Mm. If you are an AC user, it is the same dilemma. You can't answer them with your mouth, but there's no possible way you can reach for anything, even if it's on your body, yeah. to answer them. There's this impossible um, dilemma given to disabled people in police situations and compound that with any um, socioeconomic or racial bias that is going on. I mean, there's none of the controls on the disabled person. Mm. That's something that must be so scary. It, it must be, you know, for you, you and your family to that you have to worry about that every day. Yes. And this is another reason I say that when autistic people are judging families, like these are some of the decisions that they have to weigh. Mm. Like, sometimes we understand that changing who we are hurts. It is mentally unhealthy. We understand that as Black people, because that's a lot of times what we have to do is compromise our identities in the moment around people we don't know if we're safe with or not. The same thing happens 
with parents who have to put their kids in situations that they know, they know for certain their kid who is black and has ADHD will 100% have this situation Mm. happen. But we can teach them how to do things the societal way and then they have they might have a protection in the moment. We have to think about these things. Yeah. We don't know if we're doing right or wrong, but I do know that if that child does not is not a twenty five year old black male, you know, getting pulled over by police, if I know 100% he will face certain situations if I give him that protection. And I know it is hurting his mental health. At least he'll be there so we can work on their yeah. mental health. You know, yeah. at least he'll be alive. So it's not like parents in general think about all kinds of different things mm. when they're making th- these decisions. You know? So I think that we all need to share what our experiences are but also listen to other people's experiences so that we can understand what is at fault in these systems that are forcing us to decide whether mental health or literal life are the choices that we have to make, you know, like what are these, systems that are forcing families in the United States into ABA. You know, like what, instead of judging each other for making decisions, we need to realize that some people might have some really good reasons behind the Mm -hmm. decisions that they make and try to figure that out first. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head there with, with a couple of things of, as you know, as parents, all we want to do is give our kids the tools to live as as happy and as best life as possible and and part of that is protection is is keeping them safe and it might be whether that's crossing the road whether that's knowing what to do in an emergency or an accident or whether that's how to react you know when when the police turn up but but also your you know your point at the end there we need to share our experiences but we need to listen and if we need to do both side by side we need to share what what we're we've gone through what works what doesn't work but then also listen to what what's going on for other people too that's the only way to know what's going on yeah tj thank you so much this has been such a interesting enlightening conversation i i think Everyone who listens and watches is going to get so, so much out of it. Um, 
just before I do the final question with you, what's the best place for people to find you and follow you online and, and learn about the work that you do? Okay. Um, so YouTube is probably where I have like, um, my most like detailed mm -hmm. things. Like I talk about, um, I have a video about like what particular things in ABA you can like kind of root out so you don't have to put yourself or your child through the trauma that yeah. is inherent in ABA practices or some ABA practices or most. Um, where I am, I do like like smaller videos is YouTube at Knife Functioning Autism, um, TikTok, Instagram, all the same, like either at Knife Functioning Autism or at Knife.Functioning.Autism, which which is a, a, like a, 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 a pun, like a play on words yeah. to make fun of functioning labels in case people are wondering. And... Um, TikTok, Facebook, um, Instagram, and YouTube are my main things. Yeah. And and you do AAC instructional videos as well, don't you? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I also do consultations with um, schools and families. And I do like, I, I do like to make a lot of AAC content because it's it, it's such a great way to communicate mm. um, you know and like you said before I'm excited because of what it has helped me with like open up so I'm um, going to try to do more AAC content yeah and I yeah and I now I have kind of like a a view into like like what can help like teachers and stuff now that I'm doing it in schools and stuff. So I would like to do more AAC content mm. during the summer since I have this summer off of school. Yeah, I think it'd be amazing. It'd be so helpful for, for families and for teachers. It's such a such a good idea. Final question. What's one thing that you'd like to tell the world about autism? Um, I think the most important thing is to really educate. Uh, if you want to know about autism much better, educate yourself about apraxia, dyspraxia, um, motor planning, um, like the physical disability mm. part of autism. I think that is too non-understood. Not, it's not even misunderstood. It's like too, yeah. not people don't, know anything about it yeah mm. so i think that would be like one of the most educational things that people can do about when it comes to autism yeah 
Yeah, I, I think that that's really important. I know very little about apraxia and dyspraxia. Um, I definitely need to learn more. And it's not something that's really say, spoken about by professionals here. It's really not. Right. It's not. And actually, um, you're in the UK. Mm. You might look more toward developmental coordination disorder. Okay. Like sometimes when these things get translated between countries, they're like the same disorder, but yeah. they have slightly different names mm -hmm. or they're used differently. So, okay. yeah. So we, look, we use the language up, um, of dyspraxia and I just don't think that schools very rarely mention it and speech therapists I've, I've worked with very rarely mention it. Uh, but yeah, I, that's I think they don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I think the physical side is something that, that's really important. Yeah. Yes, and it means everything when it comes to AAC mm. implementation. Like I was telling you earlier, you know, so many people are just given the AC at the wrong position. Mm. <laughs> you know, something that might be a simple thing, yeah. but it's not the physical disability of autism is not given enough respect yeah. in other, other parts. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. TJ, thank you so much. I will link up in the show notes, all of your pages and different work that you do. I uh, hope everyone's enjoyed this episode and I'll be back soon. I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, subscribe to the podcast, which will make sure you don't miss any future episodes, but will also help other people find the podcast too. In the show notes, you'll find links for the best places to find this week's guest and where you can connect with me. I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode, so tag me or DM me in all the usual places. Hope you enjoyed this week's story about autism.